Welcome to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com, the go-to provider for all your Tar Heel gear. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley. You're listening to the Inside Carolina podcast, sponsored by JohnnyT-Shirt.com, the place to be on Franklin Street for your Carolina gear, JohnnyT-Shirt.com. Joined by Rob Harrington. It's been a while. Got Sherelle McMillan. Hadn't been too long. And Greg Barnes. It's been about a week. Um, So we have sort of the Inside Carolina Basketball Insider All-Star team. And Rob, since it's been a while since I've talked to you, I want to ask you what you've thought of this season. I know you've been quite busy, but I know you've been paying attention quite closely. That's right. I I think, first of all, it's great to be back on. It has been a while. Uh, If you, if I gave you my opinion in November, I'd say it's pretty similar to where things stand right now. If I gave you my opinion of the team in January, I could not possibly be more wrong. I, I made the mistake of thinking that their defensive execution at that point was pretty close to the level they were going to defend all year. And that I think more than anything else has changed. I mean, there's of course naturally been a lot of conversation about Kobe white and the season that Cam Johnson has had and all of the individuals, the ongoing saga with Nasir little and whether he would turn it around this year. But I think what has got lost somewhat is that the defense has rounded into top 15 shape and that's for a Carolina team that's national title level defense. You know, they're, they're not going to be the UVA with a top three defense, most likely, but they don't need to be. They haven't needed to be historically. And now they are playing at that level and they've been playing exceptionally well defensively, I've thought, for the past two months. Greg, I'll come to you because uh, the all ACC teams were announced and Rob talks about defense and I don't really have a qualm with anything I saw on the all ACC teams and all the awards. You know, maybe Roy Williams should have won the award for coach of the year. I could see Tony Bennett certainly, but one thing that's just absurd, and I think we'd all agree, is that Kenny Williams didn't even appear to get a sniff on the defensive side of the ball. And that's just, you know, it is what it is. It's a postseason ACC award, but that's that's ridiculous, Greg. Yeah, I think this is this is part of the problem with with kind of North Carolina um, providing the information they do, which you know they North Carolina does a, a tremendous job with uh, the way they share information. I think we all appreciate kind of the work they put into it, um, but then you start talking about you know defensive player of the game, which is what, which is where the coaching staff basically they break down the game. And they grade every defensive play as a plus or a minus, basically. And to qualify for defensive player of the game, you have to have more pluses than minuses. And so what happens is, uh, I think at the end of the year, you, Kenny Williams, uh, I, you have to imagine he won it for Duke. We don't know that for a fact quite yet. Uh, but let's say he won it for Duke. Well, he's got four defensive player of the game awards all season. Um, you know, Garrison Brooks has got nine. So if you're judging by kind of how the, the coaching staff grades, then you say, well, you know, they have Garrison Brooks with more defensive player of the game honors. Therefore, he's probably the better defender. Um, and I, I think it's I think it's fair to say that Kenny early in the season uh, was not as good defensively as maybe he was throughout the course of the year last year. Um, and I think watching what transpired on Saturday night against Barrett I mean, that was an all-time performance. I mean, just, just give the kid a, a 
tremendous amount of credit. Uh, but I think that's that's kind of how you get to the point where he's not a guy that kind of shows up as a you know one of the top five defensive players uh, in the in the league. And I think when you look at you know, the Banks kid from Georgia Tech, he's got good stats. That's always important for voters. Because if you don't get to watch a lot of these teams, you're always saying, well, who really is the good defensive players? I mean, like uh, Andrew Scora from um, Clemson. You know, I had him on the defensive team. And if you look at what he's done statistically, it's incredible. I mean, Clemson, I give Clemson a lot of credit too. They do a very good job of stats. And he's held pretty much everybody he's defended below their field goal percentage on the year. And they've got a lot of advanced metrics that they've used. And when you look at those stats, you're like, holy cow, that's really good. And that explains why Clemson's one of the better defensive teams in the league. Um, and I've watched a lot of Clemson for whatever reason, and you know, he's a very good defender. Elijah Thomas gets a lot of the credit for that team. Score is pretty good, too. Uh, and so I think it's that situation where he's really not even in the mix either. And so when you have to rely so heavily just on the, the basic stats of steals and blocks per game and those kind of things, you miss what a lot of these guys do. Uh, and I think Kenny kind of falls in that category. Um, I, I think if you were able to keep track of you know, the charges that he takes throughout the course of the year, and I know Adrian Atkinson does a great job with all those things, and we're kind of spoiled with, with those stats that he provides. But that's not available for most people in the league. Um, and I, I think those types of stats are important. And because the media doesn't see those types of stats, uh, guys like Kenny kind of get left out. Yeah, Sherelle, that's, uh, you know, I was thinking about it as Greg was talking. As always, Greg brings the the heat with the knowledge and the why. But I think a lot of this, especially that, especially defensive teams, is hype. And like Greg said, I don't think Kenny Williams really gives the hype, gets the hype that he maybe deserves. You know, I don't agree with Jay Billis a lot, um, but Jay Billis said it would be, They'd need an investigation if he wasn't on the all-defensive team, and he wasn't. So, of course, we're not going to do an investigation, but your thoughts on that. I mean, night in, night out, he guarded the best player on oftentimes the best teams in the country, and he had a lot of success doing it. Yeah, I think we are not not biased as in we're rooting for a certain outcome, but biased because we see North Carolina a ton. I mean, we've watched all 31 games, probably most of those games we probably watched two or three times just to go back and see what's going on and try and figure out um, this year's particular team. So I think there are there is that kind of thing going on where we see that Kenny's a great defender, but that's because we watched all 31 games, and it's very hard to do that if you're a media member. And now there are 15 teams in the ACC – and, you know, sometimes they're playing on the same night. Sometimes they aren't. It's just very difficult. Like, if you really wanted people to have informed votes, it, it, uh, fully informed votes is what I should say, it would require a massive amount of time. And just there's not that amount of time in the day. And I think with the defensive award, we're, we're kind of talking about it offline, it's very much like picking offensive linemen in that, sure, the school can say that, you know, John Smith graded out at 98.9%, you know, all 11 games. But what does that really mean as someone who knows a decent amount about basketball, but isn't at that expert level? I don't know if that means that he graded out well, based upon their system, he graded out well, what's the, what's the overlying kind of guidance about what it actually means. So I think all that stuff plays into it. Um, 
it's disappointing for Kenny because I think he really works hard at it. Um, that you would have liked to see him honored for it. But, you know, North Carolina, Roe Williams and his teammates know how valuable he is as a defender. So I think that's what ultimately matters the most. Before I go any deeper into this portion of the podcast, I do want to give a shout out to johnnytshirt.com. They're our title sponsor. Uh, they sponsor this podcast. They look after Inside Carolina subscribers. And they are the place to go in Chapel Hill for Carolina gear. Of course, they're on Franklin Street. They've been there for over 35 years. Always a great place to visit, whether you're in town um, or go to school there, or you're in town for the games. They're locally owned and operated, uh, alumni operated. Those guys love Inside Carolina. They love Carolina. They provide only Carolina gear. And quite frankly, you can get anything Carolina-related you ever need at johnnytshirt.com. So visit the store or visit them online, johnnytshirt.com. Remember that Inside Carolina subscribers get 10% discount online and in-store. So become an Inside Carolina subscriber if you're not already. And if you are, get the code from Ben and the gang at IC and get your 10% off. And look, one last thing about them. The customer service is great. And if you know about customer service these days, it's not so good at a lot of places. At Johnny T-Shirt, whether it's in-store or online at johnnytshirt.com, great customer service so support them as you support the inside carolina podcast so rob when i you know observe media members watching games um, it is virtually impossible to watch everything but i also wonder do they actually pay attention to what they're watching and not oh rj barrett had 26 points or 27 points or whatever it was and then not see that it took him 27 shots to take it to to get there and why was that well, it was because a guy like Kenny Williams was guarding him and forced him to take that many shots to get that many points. And I don't necessarily think a lot of the voting media across the country, not just the ACC, really digs that deep into these type things. You're absolutely right, Tommy. And I, and I am hard on them sometimes. I'm too hard because, in fairness, they have to think about stories later. They have to sort of develop a narrative about the game that may not lend itself to more – astute analysis however i think we should expect that they are not necessarily going to be wrong and i think sometimes they are just absolutely wrong because you don't have to be an expert to see someone really going after it playing off the ball and that's what kenny williams does unlike the guys who block a lot of shots or get a lot of steals i mean let's remember that in 1998 and it's not an anti-duke comment but wojo won one of the national defensive players of the year because he was visible. In fact, as a lot of fans will remember, it was the Ed Cota Wojo matchup that enabled Carolina largely to win two of those three games. I mean, he's the one who broke down Duke's entire defense. It was Wayne Turner in the tournament that year who busted up Duke's defense. That was his guy, but they just get it completely wrong. And I think from the standpoint of fans, I just wouldn't worry about it. I mean, it's one of those things where Sometimes a defensive reputation can get overhyped, like a lot of the shot blockers. Or, for example, I mean, according to Roy Williams, Theo Pinson. And just taking it in stride and developing your own opinions. You did The other night was, I thought Kenny Williams actually was really visible playing defense off the ball because of the way that Duke runs its stuff. But otherwise, there are a lot of games where I've thought he's played very solidly off the ball, just not as well on the ball. And I think that's to Greg's point that maybe he was, he was struggling with that somewhat earlier in the season. He's just taken on this massive load for himself and he's gotten better as time has gone on. 
You mentioned Ed Cota and Wojo. I will never forget being in the locker room after one of those Duke Carolina games, and, and Cota's arms looked like he had run through the briar patch. And I said, good gracious, man. You know, what's, what's the deal? He's like, Wojo, man. You know, that's how he plays defense. I mean, he was literally like a cat had shredded him during that ball game. Um, so great memories there. That was that was a fun time to cover Duke Carolina because Coda and Carwell and all those guys, they were a trip in the locker room. Greg, your thoughts digging deeper into the uh, defensive side of the argument. Um, again, still miffed that Kenny Williams didn't get any recognition for his defense. Well, I think the fact that that Kenny has been kind of the heart and soul of, of this team, uh, when you look at, like Rob said, this is a top 15 defense, um, I, I think it speaks to how this defensive unit has kind of been undervalued. And I wrote a column after the game Saturday night, kind of speaking about how the whole team has been kind of undervalued. Uh, but defensively especially, and um, I, I don't think Rob is alone and saying that, you know, really after that Louisville game in January, that there were some issues with this team. And my take at that time was that there were some issues that, while you can correct the turnovers, and we knew the team was going to shoot better than what they did against Louisville, but I didn't think this team could play uh, elite defense like they've been doing. I mean, last seven games, UNC has held their opponents to 37.1% shooting. That's incredible. If you look at the national championship teams under Roy Williams, all three of them, 05, 09, and 17, all held their NCAA opponents to below 40% shooting. That's what it takes. You know, We can talk offense all you want, but you have to play good defense. And the fact that this team, without a dominant rim protector and with a true freshman point guard, has been as effective as it has been. Um, I mean, I don't think any of us are going to sit here and say, well, Luke May is a great defender, right? Or Cameron Johnson is like one of the best defenders we can remember. I don't think any of us would say that. And correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but what this team has been able to do is they've been very effective uh, in forcing turnovers, getting out transition, which counts. But more than anything, considering that this team uses a small lineup a lot of the time, this team is better rebounding the defensive boards than it is rebounding the offensive glass. That's incredible for, for this team to do that. And so when you're talking about forcing turnovers and you're really doing a good job of, of finishing defense, which means limiting the opponent to just one shot, you can be really good defensively. And you don't have to be some great uh, lockdown team in, in the half court if you can do those things. And that's what this team has done. So I think you have to give them a tremendous amount of credit for the way that they've changed things the last two months. Um, yeah, it starts with Kenny. But as I mentioned earlier, Garrison Brooks has had a heck of a year, really flown under the radar. And then Luke and Cameron and Kobe, even Kobe, they've done a really good job working within the team concept. And we know this team can score, right? We know they can push tempo. And this is the fastest team that Roy Williams has had at North Carolina. That says a lot. But when you can score and push tempo and you can play a little bit of defense, watch out. And that's that's kind of what we've seen. And so while this team is you know, structurally, it's not that different from last year's team, 
this team right now is a lot better than last year's team because of that defensive component. Sherell, you and I talked a lot about slippage in defense and watching Carolina against Louisville, watching them against Michigan especially, um, slippage was a, a great deal of slippage was going on for North Carolina defense. So what clicked? I mean, it's the same group of guys, the same coaching staff. What changed? I think it's just consistency and buy-in. You know, if you listen to um, the interviews with players after games or you listen to Roy Williams' press conference, it seemed like um, – you know, they were there. They could do it for five or 10 or 15 minutes, but they would have lapses. And, you know, the, the freshmen wouldn't know exactly what to do or they didn't understand the level of which you have to play, you know, every night when you're going up against a schedule like UNC, out of, you know, in the non-conference and in the ACC. <clears throat> and, you know, to a T, they all talk about the Louisville game as just a, a wake-up call. And, you know, I, I, I hesitate to say it's about energy and focus and playing hard because that – you know, that kind of um, it's a little disingenuous, I think, when people say that, because um, I don't think the guys are out there not playing hard on purpose. Um, I just think, you know, they are, are they had to work together. And when, when you play defense like North Carolina, um, it's a very much a team concept, as Greg said. So you have to learn exactly where you need to be and what you need to do here. There's a, a ton of permutations on each little thing. Um, and I think that took some time. And I, I think. What I think is uh, Cam and Kobe have been huge defensively because you kind of know what you're going to get from Kenny. He's going to chase the other guys, best perimeter player around the court the entire game. And then um, Cam, you know, he's a six nine forward who this year is healthier, can move better. And Kobe is a big point guard. I think, you know, Jay Billis said on the broadcast, and I think people just forget. I think Kobe's six one or six two, like he's almost six five. And when you have that kind of height, out on the perimeter, it makes it very difficult for, for other teams. So once uh, Kobe kind of understood how to play on the ball defense a little better, I think that's when uh, the, the defense kind of took off. Greg, is the the quote of the year from Roy Williams, is, is it out in Vegas when he said he asked Nas Little who he was guarding and Nas just turned around and said, I, I don't know? <laughs> I think so, probably. And I think that speaks to kind of how this team has evolved. Um, you know, I think Nas is a great story because if there's ever a kid who had a reason just to kind of throw it in the tank and say, you know what, screw this. I'm just going to get through the year, go get drafted and be done with it. You know, Nas had that opportunity and that is not what he has done. Um, he's, he's uh, bought in like Sherelle said, um, and he's kind of been one of those guys that's Busts his butt uh, behind the scenes, and so when you've got guys like that who don't necessarily have uh, you reasons to buy in necessarily, if you if you kind of get what I'm saying, um, but you have those guys really doing what it takes, that speaks to the whole team concept, and that speaks to Roy Williams getting to these players and to the seniors for being able to make sure the younger guys are with them, and that's what we've seen, and we've talked about it so many times before. Uh, that Roy Williams has his teams playing their best ball at the end of the year. That's what we're seeing. And so, you know, Nas Little, um, he had a stretch, I think, seven games in a row recently where uh, he had a positive defensive grade. And that may not seem like a lot, but when you compare it to what happened earlier in the year, it's night and day. 
And so if a guy like that can see that amount of improvement, that speaks to what all these other guys are doing too. And that's how you get to be a, a top, 15, top 15 defense. And we, we were talking about slippage earlier. Um, I think the other thing is that to the untrained eye, when you go from your starters to your your core bench guys, let's call it um, Leaky for the amount of time he was there, and then uh, Brandon Robinson, Nasir, and Seventh Woods, when you go to those guys, there's not a drop-off. They might even be a little bit better defensively when those guys come in. So that helps the team defense too because you can get your starters rest. You can get Kenny a little bit of rest when those guys come in and your defense you know, is just as good, if not better, um, while they're in the game. So I think that's important too for why the defense has continued to improve throughout the season. Rob, I want to get you back in, in this, and I'm going to stay on the defensive side because Sherelle brought it up there at the end is, um, and we're talking more about defense than I've heard any broadcast talk about defense <laughs> all year <laughs> in this podcast, but it's important. I mean, and it's why Roy Williams' teams usually round into form. But, Rob, your thoughts on Nasir and how he's come along all around, but also on the defensive end. And then, like Sherelle mentioned, B-Rob and seventh. Uh, their offense sort of slid as the season progressed, but they did not hurt Carolina. In fact, they were positives on the defensive end when they were out there. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, Sherelle has written extensively about Nasir Little and how he has handled what I'm sure has been a very difficult year for him personally given the expectations that greeted him upon his arrival in Chapel Hill. I would say this, I interviewed him last spring at the McDonald's All-American practices. And I asked him directly, I said, if you don't start, will you be very disappointed? And he was like, no, I wouldn't be disappointed at all. And, and my natural reaction to that answer is like, okay, you're going to give me a fake answer, but it's, but it's a sound answer. He actually kind of convinced me that he meant it. And that's unusual because I, I enter a question like that with a lot of skepticism, but you still need to ask it. And he handled it beautifully then. I forecast the way he's handled it throughout the year. The one thing I would say from a scouting point of view, having watched him so much in high school, is that I, I think the thing that we missed, and this is a very difficult thing to scout in high school, is how a player will respond to structure at higher levels of the game because you don't see that in high school. You don't see it in AAU. You really don't see it in the high school season either. And and the difference is that some people just have a knack for how team basketball works in a lot more structure, especially defensive structure. And we have seen Nasir Little get lost a lot, you know, just, just not knowing where to be. And that hesitation, both defensively and offensively, has made him look more timid and I think less skilled than he actually is. I think, you know, his athleticism is as advertised. I think his skill level as a shooter is better than he's shown. He's, he's started to come around on that later in the year. He never was a ball handler. But I think, you know, just, just from a scouting point of view, I would put that in there is that some things are just really hard to see. And, for example, we, we probably undervalued Kobe White on that. You know, of course, you knew that he could score, but he, he gets college basketball. And you saw early in the year, I mean, he was eating shots, and he figured it out really quickly, like, oh, here, here are the angles in the college game, and he's worked that out brilliantly because he hasn't given up his drives to the rim. He just does it a little bit more selectively. Now, as for uh, Robinson and Woods, of course, uh, that that class, what's left of the 2016 high school class, has has had a limited impact, I mean, if we're being honest about it. But at the same time, I don't think Brandon Robinson is an untrustworthy player. 
Uh, Woods has continued to struggle with turnovers, but recently I feel like he's regained form a little bit. If those guys this season, at least, uh, don't need to play 15 plus minutes, probably, but they do need to be able to come in and give someone a break. You know, I, I think Kenny Williams is such a fitness marvel that he can get away with it sometimes. I think in an ideal world, he wouldn't play quite so many minutes. Uh, so it, it might be good, for example, in the ACC tournament. I am sure that Roy Williams will go a little deeper with the prospect of three games in three days, potentially even with two games in three days in a tournament environment. So I think Robinson and Woods, just seeing some new faces, it's probably, I don't think it's an accident that Woods had his best game of his career, at least as a scorer against a non-conference opponent in Gonzaga. I think, I think a lot of his stuff is just pressure and getting outside the state, getting outside conference opponents might open him up a little bit more. Uh, I, I still think those two guys have a lot to contribute, and obviously, especially next year. Sherelle, we talked about, or you talked about a lot during our podcast that, you know, especially Robinson's performances were sort of leading up to probably next year. But the way Roy Williams has structured this season and the way it's always played out for North Carolina in the tournament is a guy like Brandon Robinson or even a guy like Seventh Woods are going to play a very impactful role in at least one tournament game. It's happened every year that Carolina's won a national championship and has gone deep in the tournament. You can look back, and I still remember Billy Packer saying, what the hell is Scott Cherry doing on the floor during the Michigan (laughs) game in 93? But since then, Melvin Scott hitting big shots and guys like that. So, you know, Roy Williams continued to do it his way. His way has got him a share of the regular season, but it's also got his guys prepared to go deep in tournament play. It's fu- funny you mentioned Scott Cherry. He actually just won a state championship in uh, Tennessee uh, high school basketball. I just happened to see it the other day. Um, so congratulations to him. Um, yeah, I-, I think you don't have to look back far. You go back to the 2017 championship year and against Butler, you know, Luke May had played some. You know, he had um, been in the game maybe to the chagrin of some Carolina fans. And then he comes out against Butler and looks like, you know, the second coming. And then against Kentucky, we obviously saw what he did. Just people forget that before the shot, he had a tremendous game. I mean, he was incredible for most of that game. And then in uh, the national semifinals in the final four, Nate Brick kept Carolina afloat against Oregon in that first half. Um, so you, there's always going to be, like you said, a game where that happens. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if Brandon Robinson, you know, maybe there's a half where Cam Johnson is in foul trouble or, some shots just aren't falling and, and Brandon Robinson makes a hustle play or hits a three or there's something that, you know, helps North Carolina um, either stay in the game or, or put the game away. And like I said, my, my uh, thing about Robinson is that his, um, the trust he's, the trust that Roy Williams is gaining in him will be tremendously um, important for North Carolina next season. We're going to talk about recruiting later, but um, depending upon what happens, Robinson's role could go from, you know, seventh man to somebody who has to score 10 to 12 points a game. And just the fact that he's getting comfortable with more playing time now, I think is big for next season. Greg, let me come to you and let's talk about maybe um, we've seen the all ACC teams and we saw uh, Cam Johnson certainly deserving of first team Kobe and Luke getting second team. You guys were right um, from our podcast before where I thought one of those two would get on the first team along with Cam Johnson, I'm still not sure they shouldn't have over Cal Guy. Had it been Ty Jerome, I would have agreed with it more. But 
Cam Johnson's performance this year, I mean, this his his season will go down as one of the best, you know, ever for a North Carolina player and just the fact of his path to that pretty incredible and and it's a credit to him, it's a credit to uh Roy Williams as well. Yeah, I'm not necessarily a big stats guy in terms of points per game and those types of things. Um, I'm more interested in how you perform when it matters. And to me, you really don't have any tougher games than going on the road in the ACC. And I don't think a lot of people appreciate the difficulty of playing on the road in the ACC. I mean, playing at Clemson, at Little John, uh, when that team needs, desperately needs a win to kind of solidify their NCAA tournament footing, that is a hostile environment. I mean, we hear about Duke all the time, and Duke is a, a great place to, to watch a game. It's a, it's a tough environment. But I think a lot of people just assume that's like the end-all, be-all, and then you have all these other ones. Playing at Pitt's not easy. You know, Back when Maryland was in the league, Maryland was probably a tougher place to play than Cameron. Um, and NC State, because of the hatred there, that's a very tough place to play. And so I'll look at kind of what, what guys do in those types of games. Um, and when you look at Cam Johnson, what stands out about him to me is that on the road in the ACC, he averaged 20.8 points per game, shot 58.3% from the floor, and 57.4% from three-point range. I mean, that is a, that's an assassin. That, that is deadly shooting, efficient shooting, um, and that's why North Carolina goes 9-0 in the ACC on the road. That is the reason. It's what Cam did. Um, and we can talk about, yeah, you look at 30-15 and 15 at, at Duke, and everybody had you know, double-doubles at NC State, and all that's true. Uh, but Cam consistently, game in and game out on the road, delivered. And so that's why, I mean, he, I, how he's not unanimous first-team All-ACC, I don't know, but you know, whatever. He was a first-team All-ACC guy, um, and I, I think that kind of speaks to the season that he's had. And to be as efficient as he's been is incredible. I never thought coming into this year that he'd be a guy that we'd say, okay, is is he at the level even better than what Justin Jackson did his final year in Chapel Hill? And I think we can legitimately have that conversation. And We have a lot of season left to go. We have another month left potentially. Um, and so it's, it's premature to have that conversation right now. But up to this point, uh, I think it's difficult to say that that what Justin did was better than what Cam's done. I mean, we'll have to see how things play out the next you know, four or five weeks. Rob, not too many people have had uh, senior seasons like Cam Johnson has had. Your thought on his performance this year and maybe um, based uh, – contrast that with how you thought he would maybe be as a Carolina player when it first became evident that he was going to transfer to Carolina two years ago? I think there was some inkling among at least the high information fans, which of course I would, I would deem to be our subscriber base because we talked about this stuff a lot. I mean, he, he in effect was a freshman in terms of familiarity with Carolina system, not as a college basketball player, obviously what made him a unicorn because this is so rarely true is that he was a graduate transfer with two years to play. And, you know, he had a good first year. I don't, I think he certainly has improved as a player. He looks healthier, but it's also just that he now understands what Carolina basketball is. And, and 
the structure that it demands of its players and the opportunities it provides. And he is now making the kinds of shots. I think you know, Greg was touching on this that the, the the Justin Jackson type shots. He doesn't have the floater, but a, but a lot of his threes, the quick catch and shoot threes, remind me of that. So he's he's getting a lot of those same opportunities. Some of the Wayne Ellington threes. I, it's not that surprising based on last year because he showed a lot last year. Obviously, if you looked at him in high school, you would never, ever, ever, ever think that he could be this good. I mean, no one thought that he could be this good. Based on last year, I don't. I think it's mildly surprising maybe, but not really shocking. It's really the development arc once he got to Pitt. And, you know, on one hand, you can cry in your beer for the Panthers, but not really because – he did everything he needed to do there. And if this is a different conversation, but once he graduated, I thought that he had earned the right to go somewhere else. And even with the two years, instead of one year, he's made the most of it. I mean, he's the ultimate success story in terms of changing gears midstream. And I thought that his senior speech was just spectacular. Indeed. Cam Johnson, uh, just unbelievable season. And like Greg mentioned, maybe a month left to go. So uh, want to turn a little bit towards the ACC tournament. Of course, you're listening to the Inside Carolina podcast sponsored by Johnny T-shirt.com uh, on Franklin Street or online. Get your uh, 10% off if your Inside Carolina premium message board subscriber is worth it. Save you some money getting that Carolina gear. Greg, come to you first. Let's talk about the ACC tournament a little bit. It's It's tough to preview at least the first round for North Carolina because two games have to be played, but let's just sort of look at the bracket as a whole. And I want to get your, all three of you guys comments, you know, Carolina potentially has a matchup against Louisville in the quarterfinals. And given what we've talked about Louisville, that may raise a few eyebrows, but how do you see um, Carolina's place in the bracket and the bracket overall? Well, uh, truth be told, I don't think, Saturday was really relevant with regard to the ACC tournament. Um, I think it was important for the rivalry. I think it was important for NCAA tournament seeding. I don't think it really mattered for what transpires this week in Charlotte. And I say that because after Virginia beat Louisville up in Charlottesville in the first game, the four o'clock game, we knew that uh, Duke and North Carolina were headed for a rematch on Friday night. It didn't matter who was the two or who was the three that was going to happen. And so, Louisville, um, I, I think they peaked early, and they've really shown uh, really an ability to kind of fall apart late in games consistently. Everybody kind of points to the Duke game, of course. But I mean, even even Saturday night, they built a seven-point lead, and Virginia, uh, two possessions later, have, have cut it back to two points. And at that point in time, the, the momentum had shifted. So I, I don't know that. Uh, Thursday is going to be much of a concern for the Tar Heels. I think the concern is is Friday night, um, especially if Zion's able to play. That's going to be a tough game. It's always beat to beat, always tough to beat Duke three games in a row. Um, and then when you add in the fact that the Zion's going to have a lot to play for, uh, as Duke's trying to pencil themselves in for a, a number one seed in the NCAA tournament as well, uh, I think that's kind of what everybody is expecting. And I think it's fair to expect that. Um, and then, of course, Virginia is in the driver's seat. I mean, the fact that you can get to the championship game without having to play Carolina or Duke. Um, and that's maybe a conversation we can have. But I think, you know, you know, I think you can make a very good case that the 
three of the top four teams in the country are in the ACC. I do think very highly of Gonzaga. Um, you can make the case for sure that Carolina, Duke, and Virginia are right there. And so uh, I, I think that's kind of where we're at is that, you know, that, that Duke-Carolina game everybody has circled for Friday night. And then at that point in time is, you know, after you get through that game, does the winner have enough left in the tank to try to handle Virginia on Saturday night? Sherell, your thoughts on it? it? It reminds me of the 95 ACC tournament. Maybe Rob's more suited than – the youngster Sherelle to talk about that one. I mean, that, that tournament was ridiculous with uh, Joe uh, Smith and Rashid and Stackhouse and Wake Forest. Don't Did sleep on me now. It? Yeah, don't sleep <laughs> on me now. Everybody but, was worried when Rashid turned his ankle and he started screaming. And well, that was, was like, in, oh, no. Well, that was the second I said, yep, he gone. When that, <laughs> when that happened against Wake Forest. But, uh, yeah. you know, your thoughts, is there any way, and we can – do the reverse mojo jinx or whatever, but is there any way, couple things, any way Virginia's not in the final? And of course, no. there's always a way, but Virginia's going to be in the final. And is there any way Carolina yes. and Duke don't play Friday night again? Uh, well, I mean, you know, this Louisville team beat Carolina very badly two months ago. And, you know, you can say it's, it's a very different team and um, both both teams have gone in different directions, but for one night they had something bottled up where they were just much better than Carolina. And who knows if they can tap into that again, because the two games between Carolina and Louisville have been very strange in that Louisville came to Chapel Hill and dominated um, UNC. And then UNC went to Louisville and dominated Louisville. So I think the truth about the two teams and how they match up is probably somewhere in the middle. And once you get, you know, under 10 points, I feel like anything can happen. I don't think there'll be, I think the line for that will be, you know, that high. So, I mean, it's – I don't expect it, but North Carolina could certainly lose to Louisville on Thursday. Um, and then against Duke, uh, you know, that's kind of to – I think for a lot of people, <laughs> Carolina fans, maybe Duke fans, that is their ACC championship that they'll – if they win that game, they'll say, you know what, fine, Virginia, here, have this. But, you know, we have rights uh, because we won this particular game. I think that's the, what both fan bases will think um, if that game – you know, comes to fruition. And we saw it last year. Um, North Carolina won their opening round game, you know, fairly easily. And then it was kind of a, a battle of attrition with Duke on Friday night. And then Saturday they had didn't really have much left um, to against Virginia. And, you know, they, they hung in there for a little bit, but Virginia style is just so um, grating and pounding that it just eventually they wore out. So I think you could see something similar happening. Um, to North Carolina or Duke this season. But, I, I, yeah, I, I think it's Virginia's tournament to lose. Rob, your take on the ACC tournament. I, you know, it's been this way for a couple of years now, a few years now. But just looking at the bracket, it's not the ACC championship or the ACC tournament I remember. Um, and Shrell and I laughed about it. It used to be, you know, you'd sneak a Walkman into school and for ACC tournament Friday. Now you take off work for ACC tournament Tuesday if you're a, a Wake Forest <laughs> fan. You know, it's just not the same. But your thoughts on the bracket and, and how you think it shakes out? Well, I was just having this conversation with someone yesterday. I, I like the way the Big East used to do it, where if you didn't finish above a certain line, then you don't qualify. I don't see the, ter- the Tuesday games providing any value whatsoever. Some people may just be looking for an excuse to go watch their team play, but those teams don't have anything to cheer for, really. They're not going to do anything, and it's horrible basketball. I mean, ACC Tuesday is just brutal to watch because the, those teams, by and large, they're 
they're defective in fundamental ways and they're hopeless. Um, beyond that, I do think the Wednesday games are fun. From a, a Carolina point of view, I, I'll, I'll go back a little earlier than 1995. All right, this ties into this past Saturday night. 1988, there was a lot of complaining most recently about Kenny Williams taking all these charges against Barrett and is, are there too many charges in the college game and all that. But I, I would remind everyone who's forgotten that it was a non-charge call. I think it was Jeff Lebo took on Billy King. That was an obvious charge call. And that, that non-call helped facilitate a D, a Duke three Oh sweep. Uh, and I believe that was the second of the three games also. And the third game Duke won by very close game by a couple of points with freshman King Rice missing a layup toward the end of that game. So the question is, does this set up for Carolina and Duke to play, albeit the semifinals and for Carolina to win with Trey Jones missing a layup late in the game? I'm just going to put that out there as one possibility. (laughs) I I do agree with Sherelle that UVA and when it is comfortable is really tough to bet against because the more they know you, the more they benefit relative to you benefiting from knowing about them. I think they just have a way of negating and being negative. Where they have a problem is the following week and possibly week after it. And I'm not someone who thinks you know they'll never make the final four, but it's when they get in those situations, they don't know an opponent. The tournament brings more volatility. They can get a little wobbly, but they are very much at home in the ACC. I, I thought the the 2016 final with Bryce Johnson and those guys going at it. Freshman Kenny Williams playing some great defense in a key spot in that game against Malcolm Brogdon. Uh, it was just a heavyweight slugfest. We all, as a staff, talked about that at the time. I think it'll be fun regardless. I think, you know, obviously the Heels do not have a one seed locked up. I do think it could come down to who has a better weekend, Duke or UNC. Oddly, if Carolina and Duke both lose on Thursday, then, you know, maybe Carolina gets it. Uh, but if Carolina were to win one game, or Duke were to win one game, rather, Carolina would then have to win two games because then they would have to go through Duke to get the number one seed. I think that's what's on the line. I think UVA game would just be icing on the cake. That's probably not going to be an issue that they would encounter until they would get to the final four. And at that point, you can't complain about anyone you would play. I think it'll be fine. I think the Hills are playing with house money, even if they have a, even if they were to lose on Thursday, not the end of the world. I just want to say that in the, the first decade that I covered UNC, North Carolina and Duke played once in the ACC tournament back in 2011. And that was, uh, pretty much a blowout on uh, on Duke's part. But yet, here we are. They've played two years in a row in the ACC tournament. And we're looking dead in the face of a another opportunity. Um, and I think you have to give Virginia a lot of credit, Tony Bennett, uh, with what they've done really since 2014. I think since 14, they've gone 16-2 and two, three times in the ACC which is uh, incredible. But if we're talking about Duke-UNC three times in a row in the ACC tournament, you know what's next. We're going to get a fourth UNC-Duke game soon. We've crossed the hurdle with the ACC tournament. We're going to see Carolina-Duke in the NCAA tournament. Is it going to be this year? I don't know. But but I'm telling you, we're, we're on the right track and hopefully maybe in the Final Four in the next five years. We'll see that come to fruition. Did you say hopefully? Hopefully, yes. <laughs> I, I vote that we we delete and veto everything Greg just said. 
the fan i mean that that yeah i mean not to get into sports talk radio too much but i don't know that either fan base could, one wants that or two could handle that because it is the ultimate you know trump card like it it's you can't get any bigger than saying oh we beat you in the final four or, or oh we beat you in the national championship game i can't imagine a few years ago um auburn and alabama you know playing for a chance to go to uh, the national championship game that it's just so much different in basketball. I, I feel like the world would just stop. I think North Carolina would just stop completely as a state. Um, yeah. It, I, I need, just, I it needs to happen. Sherelle. <laughs> I can't imagine it, it happening. It needs to happen. For the this, record, this... I, I would never want to see Duke Carolina final four or championship game. This oh, come what on. Said. Come it on. Would, it would, it would probably be, you know, in the modern era, probably the, the highest rated college basketball game of the, of the modern era. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> okay, listeners, listen up. Share your votes on Inside Carolina message boards. Do you agree with Rob Sherrell and myself, or do you agree with Greg Barnes? Greg Barnes believes Carolina Duke Final Four needs to happen. Rob Sherrell and myself thinks it should never happen. It should never happen unless it's in the national championship game if it did, but I just don't want to see it because I can see it, some craziness happen. Um. And I agree with Sherelle, Greg, that it would wreck everything. It doesn't matter whether one team won 10 times in a row. They'd be still like national champions. But see, that's what needs to happen in the Final Four, not championship game. Because just like we're talking about the ACC tournament with Virginia, those guys would be so exhausted that whoever got to the title game would probably lose. And there'd be all the blame on the on the Final Four game. I think it would be it would be an incredible story for the UNC Duke rivalry um, and it would be it would be a lot of laughs it may take a few years to be able to appreciate it but I think it would be it'd be great it'd be awesome. hey you know if if uh, a couple of guys in 91 were, were hitting the shots a little bit right. better it, right. it, it would have happened <laughs> I'm gonna take a break we're gonna cut Greg Barnes loose after that Greg's <laughs> got to go handle some some big time uh, appointments here when I come back after the break, Rob Sherell and I are going to discuss Carolina basketball recruiting. I know a lot of you have been wanting to hear from Rob in that regard. We'll be right back. And we're back. We've sent Greg off to um, the ether with his uh, Duke Carolina National Championship type nonsense. But, Rob, I want to touch base on Carolina recruiting with you, and I want to look at it a little bit um, holistically. And we, we've had a lot of these podcasts with the three of us Sherelle McMillan, of course, still here with us. And we've discussed uh, why maybe Roy Williams and Carolina didn't get the high-end players. And a lot of people put it off on a lot of different things. But I think one of the biggest, at least to me, is the one-and-done aspect of it. These guys want to come in, they want to showcase, and they want to go. Uh, Nas Little hasn't really showcased, but I think we all agree um, at this point, at least, and I don't think it's breaking news or anything, but just our opinion that Roy Williams is very likely to have two one-and-done talents this year for the 18-19 team in Kobe White and Nas Little. How do you think that will change anything as far as recruiting for Roy Williams in North Carolina? I'm really interested by that question because our theory has been, or at least my theory has been, I can't speak for anyone else, that they needed a player to come in with a big reputation to have a great year and then to go in the high lottery. Like that, that was the established 
gold formula for turning it around. They, they just needed that one player to promote. And they haven't had exactly that because Little came in with a pre-existing part, but of course he hasn't had a big year and now it looks like, who knows, but he, he may go maybe later lottery. Kobe White was generally thought to be a two-year player. Uh, even as late, even after he played so well at the McDonald's game, the NBA guys there were kind of like, he looks like a good college kid, but not really what we're looking for because the dynamic quickness wasn't there. And is he a ball handler? And I think that he, to our earlier conversation podcast, he just sort of understands how to play basketball. And that works whether you're in college or you're in the NBA. If he were to play his way into the late lottery, and obviously he's had a huge year and that that game was so highly visible the other night against Duke. He got tons and tons of attention. His Twitter mentions are through the roof. If you buy that as a metric, I think it would be curious to me because I'm not sure they still have that one person. You know, you're going against say hypothetically Duke and Kentucky. And it's like, Oh, we have this litany of not just lottery picks, but like number one, number two, number three. And then Carolina can turn around and counter that and say, yeah, well, we're not holding anyone back. I mean, we, we gave Kobe white all the freedom in the world look how many turnovers he had early in the year and we never threatened his minutes in any way and look how much better he got and and look how much his stock appreciated from where it started. It's just a little bit more of a nuanced sales pitch. I don't know how effective it would be, or if I'm not framing this question correctly, maybe I'm looking at it too generally and it would be effective for a guard cough, cough, call Anthony. Whereas a big guy still may be the jury may be out the mind of a big guy or a wing. So I'll be curious what Sherelle thinks about this. Sherelle, you're up. Share your knowledge. I, I think Kobe's, if there's been any question about Roy Williams willing to give the keys to a guard, Kobe White's answered every single one of them. I mean, that cannot possibly be a question in anybody's mind anymore um, for North Carolina. Uh, for sure. And, you know, Rob mentioned Cole Anthony. He's North Carolina's top target, um, as we talked about in 2019, has been for some time. And he was at the game and he's been to UNC more than he's been to any other school. Um, one of his really good friends is signed, uh, Armando Baycott. And you just have to think that that environment um, against that team with the point guard at North Carolina kind of doing whatever he wanted to once he made up his mind that he was going to in the second half has to have um, a, a lasting impact. You know, a lot of people think that North Carolina is in a great spot with him. I happen to agree. And you just wonder if uh, Saturday night is the kind of thing um, that pushes him over the top, you know, to, to eventually end up at UNC. But, you know, he is, you know, a top five player in his class. He is definitely, you know, barring injury going to be a, a one and done player. So, you know, just seeing Kobe do what he did, um, you know, Sear with his pedigree, you know, North Carolina could very easily have, uh, you know, three one and done players over two classes if they were to sign Anthony. And he's definitely that type of player. Rob, your thoughts on maybe the, I don't know if it's progression, but Nas's path. Uh, you spoke to it a little bit. Um, earlier in the podcast about the structure I just think it's been interesting to see him sort of grow I I think he'd be fantastic as a sophomore at Carolina similar to the way you know some guys in the past whether it be Vince Carter um, even back to Jordan's days that you know they stuck around and they got even better with the money these days I, I don't think that's possible but your thoughts on how he's sort of grown over the course of the season, Kobe White too. I mean, but we've we've hit on that more. But 
Nas comes in two or three projected in these mock drafts or whatever. Um, you know, your thoughts on the way he's, he's progressed this season. I think the, the best thing to, that I've noticed over the course of the year is that he now seems to be trying to play to his strengths as a college player. And I didn't think that was true for the first maybe two months of the season. And that's understandable. I mean, it, it, as mature as he is and intelligent as he is with all the perspective that he has, he gets to be human. And beyond that, he gets to be a teenager with individual aspirations for his performances. And I think he was playing to that more. Now, I think even when he doesn't play well, you see him hitting the offensive glass. You see him trying to dribble a little bit less on the perimeter, dribbling more in a straight line, using his shoulder. He had a, a missed shot against Duke that was like vintage Nasir Little that you would have seen in high school where he, he went left and he used his shoulder to create space. And I don't know, it may have been Delaria who came over and bothered this shot, but I think Garrison Brooks followed up with either a layup or a dunk. You know, It, it opened up the play, and that's the kind of thing he needs to do even where his his stat lines have not been as impressive, some of his shooting, his percentages haven't always been great. But I like the shots that he's taking generally, uh, with, with a couple of exceptions recently. But I've been impressed by that. You know, it's asking a lot for someone who, in all likelihood, is not going to be on campus for much longer. And of course, he would know that better than anyone. And yet, to say, all right, well, we have you know maybe. 10 or 12 games left in this season, and I'm going to try and help this team as much as I possibly can, even though it has been obvious for quite some time that he was never going to start because of the year that Camp Johnson was having, because Luke May is going to be a starter. And yet he still made that determination consciously, and it is the highest praise I could give a, a young athlete, irrespective of, of some of the other transitional struggles. Terrell, to that point, and this is sort of, I guess, maybe a hypothetical, but you, you've talked to a lot of these guys and you've kept up with them from, you know, early high school on through into the pro days. I mean, how will that help Little down the road? Having well, that that realization, that recognition, or that learning experience? Uh, you know, everything, you know, we not to get deep, but we are – the summation of everything that we encounter, all the people, all the things we do. I think That's for this <laughs> year, basketball wise, it's going to be the same thing. He'll take some of the things that he's learned from Roy Williams. You know, um, I would imagine some of it, you know, about rebounding specifically because, you know, North Carolina emphasizes rebounding as much as anybody, um, how he can contribute there. And I think he'll, he's just probably learned um, patience. I think he's learned a lot about himself um, that, you know, the team is always greater than the individual person. And, you know, those kind of things are skills. Um, I don't think people realize that um, once you get into the NBA, if you play in the NBA, you're a really good athlete. Like that sounds simple enough, but I think don't think people really realize just how much of an elite of the elite of the elite you have to be to play in the NBA. So, you know, most guys are, are pretty athletic and, and can do some things, but what starts to separate people um, and, and puts them in that space separate from everyone else are those kind of intangibles intangibles that we talked about. You know, his his jump shot, I think Rob said it earlier, I think he's a better jump shooter than what he's shown this year. Um, I think some of the hesitation has been just learning the system and trying to figure out not to take a good shot or a shot that you know you can make, but how to get the team a great shot. And that is something that a lot of places don't teach people you know Roy Williams we know all of his isms and one of his is that he doesn't want a good shot he wants the best shot or he wants a great shot um, so learning all those things um, 
just his basketball IQ, I think, has been enhanced this year. It was, I think it was already decent, and I think it's definitely gotten better this year. So he'll take that with him and then combine that into the way the NBA game is played now, his natural athleticism, his work ethic, work ethic and I think all that will help him at the next level. I think he'll be successful. Trail, I'm going to stick with you on the recruiting aspect of it. You've done a um, couple articles since the Elite Junior Day, both football and basketball, but you did one on Greg Brown. You did one on Zaire Williams. First of all, could it have gone any better for North Carolina? <laughs> and also, um, what kind of effect do you think it has on these guys um, and perhaps will have on these guys moving forward? So I'm going to ask you some questions back to get to the answer. So, uh, no, yes, yes, no. <laughs> so in, in 2017, do you remember that game in the Smith Center regular season yes. finale? Do you remember who was there, um, like a really important basketball player? Do you remember who that was? We talked about it. Man, you're killing me. He He's the owner of the Charlotte Hornets? Yes. <laughs> so he was there. That was some guy uh, named Mike. Yeah, he was there. You know, the building was rocking. North Carolina was trying to take down Duke. And, um, you know, they, they were just – everything was crazy. That The building was intense. You know, they were eventually on their way to a national championship. We didn't know that at the time. But Zion Williamson was there. Kevin Knox was there. Jaleek Felton was there. And then a couple of other Carolina commits, Kobe White and Leaky Black, were there. Brandon and Ingram? No, Brandon. <laughs> he was in the NBA. Run out of tickets. <laughs> yeah. So my, my point is, is that – yeah, the atmosphere was great. Carolina did everything possible. The team played well. The fans did well. The The coaches were into it. You know, the building was on fire. And sometimes that's just not enough for players. There's a lot of other things that go into their decision. So, you know, I said all that to say that uh, the feedback we've gotten so far, and if you want to, you know, learn more about it, you know, just sign up for IC's free trial and you can check out some of the stories that are VIP on the site. But just what we learned is guys were really receptive to the environment that it felt big time is what a couple of players said and that the fans at North Carolina really made an impact on them because it's a basketball town and basketball is king there. And that's not the way it is at, at all places. So it's a long way to say that it was very good for North Carolina, but that is just one piece of a puzzle that has, you know, probably 25 to 30 pieces in it. That, that's a great non-answer, but you, you can get plenty of answers if you do join the Inside Carolina message boards and get Sherelle's stuff, but Sherelle, I agree. It's hard to know um, until actually, until something actually happens. It's hard to know if it'll happen. Rob, Rob, let me end the show. And of course, everybody, johnnytshirt.com, get the free code for 10% off if you're one of those Inside Carolina Premium members as well. But Rob, let me ask you this question as we close the show. And Rail, I want your comments as well as we get out of here. Is this Roy Williams' best coaching job at North Carolina since he's been back? Oh boy, I I just went through this thought exercise the other day. I I landed, and of course, this is all caveat. A lot can change. At this moment, if the season ended today and it was with a mysterious end, I would say it was maybe second after two thousand six. Uh, I think the two thousand six season is maybe slightly romanticized, and yet uh, I think that you certainly can't argue with that team being a three seed. Over the course of the year, they might have improved the most. But they also had a superstar talent, even though he was a freshman, of course, in Tyler Hansbrough. And this team doesn't quite have a player you know, quite like that. But I think you could argue it's his best coaching job. I mean, they they also have improved a great deal. I think what I still see 
is good college talent and exceptional leadership quality on the court and on the sidelines. And more to the point, I think you're seeing what impresses me about these these past five years, especially really in two thousand starting in 2013, is that someone who you know, his pedigree is in the Dean Smith philosophy of inside out. And you've seen due to personnel limitations and, and sort of imbalances that Roy Williams has been forced to at least somewhat abandon the way that he would like to play. I mean, it started out early this year. They were you know, looking inside to Garrison Brooks more, and they kind of gave up on that early, even though he's had a very good year. You know, they, they just sort of accepted, okay, we're going to be a perimeter oriented team again. And yet, despite all that, they are still a phenomenal rebounding team. And I think that that one stat to me as a team stat is the most impressive thing they've done is that even though you, you're not able to play exactly the way you'd like to play offensively, they still are able to get to the heart of Roy Williams basketball somehow, some way. And I think that is just a hallmark of everything they've accomplished that they, they give something, but then they solidify themselves in the things that they care about most. And and if you look at the Duke game, just just as one example of this, look at the rebounding from the first half to the second half, and there's your story. Sherelle, I'll give you the keys to wrap it up. <laughs> I'm going to go off the wall and cheat a little bit. Um, I, I'm going to say that it's not his best coaching job. It is certainly top three or four, I would say. Um, and that's no, that's not saying he didn't do a great job. I am just partial to his first season at UNC. Um, and maybe this is my personal bias coming in because I was in school then. But I think what he had to come into um, was a disjointed team of disjointed group of individuals who, while they liked playing with each other, didn't really know how to play with each other. And the season didn't wasn't great. You know, they lost to Texas in the second round of the NCAA tournament. And, you know, there were, I'm sure there were times where they didn't like Coach Williams and Coach Williams didn't like them. But that experience that he gave them of how to do things, how to play how to run his system was the foundation on which this entire, you know, 16 year run for North Carolina was built upon because that led to the national championship. And then that started back to where Carolina basketball, you know, it, it brought Carolina basketball back to where it's always been. And they've been building on that ever since. So I kind of cheated a little bit and got a little deep, but I do think um, his first season in 2003, 2004 is his best coaching job. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to follow up real briefly on 2004. That's a that's a great argument, and it speaks to the point that I was making too about the rebounding and establishing these these core principles of Carolina basketball and carrying that forward with all the rules changes and recruiting ups and downs and personnel alterations. In 2003, I'm looking at the stats right now. The Tar Heels ranked number 238 in offensive rebounding percentage, and with basically the same crew of characters in 2004. They were number 11. So literally in his very first year, they improved by 220 some 227 spots in, in a category that the program values most. And so they have always found a way to to play Carolina basketball somehow, some way, almost always. They've found a way to excel in the areas where they think they need to excel, even if they, like as Shrell just pointed out with the difficult to coach team in 2004, with the, some of the teams with lesser talent, some of the teams with lesser front court talent and experience, it's it's just a, a magnificent record over the course of these past what sixteen years. Indeed, it is. It is fascinating to watch the points you made, and that's why I think 
this year is Williams's best year at Carolina. And I say that because of what you mentioned, Rob. He hadn't been able to play traditional Carolina basketball, but yet they've still dominated the boards. They've still dominated uh, the ACC with the exception of Virginia. You know, to go 26-5, and five, to go 11-1 and one away from home, including a win early over Wofford that's going to the NCAA tournament to go 16 and two in this conference. I just think it's Roy Williams' best season at Carolina, which makes the coach of the year award even more mystifying, perhaps at least from Carolina eyes um, focusing on North Carolina, but fascinating to watch still a ways to go. The ACC tournament kicks off today. If you're listening to this on Tuesday and Carolina, of course, have to wait till Thursday at seven to see who they play. Many thanks to Greg Barnes that left us earlier. Rob Harrington, Sherelle McMillan, and Johnny T-Shirt. Guys, thank you. Yep. I think this is our longest podcast ever, isn't it? <laughs> it's pretty close. Uh, <laughs> Rob, you're a part of the long one, so I appreciate you taking the time, my man. Oh, absolutely. It flew by. Thanks for listening to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com. Brought to you by T-Shirt.com. Where to go for your next Tar Heel gear purchase.